Welcome to another episode of Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushy with your host, Menion, also known as Rob. And I nearly forgot what the name of the show was. It's been so long. I was sitting on a number of calls and um, the the calls are from uh, Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast and Michael of uh, Merck, also known as Merck the Meek, um, who were kind enough to respond to the past few episodes that I'd done largely on Dark Sun, if my memory um, memory serves me correctly, but uh, I, I put them straight into my phone and time went by and uh, here I am. Uh, it, it wasn't a great uh, New Year or, or Christmas for me, I've got to admit, and that was partially one reason uh, for me um, procrastinating procrastinating and procrastinating um the original thought had actually been to get the podcast out before the end well christmas preferably but the before the end of the the year and as you can see we're now at the end of january and uh this is the podcast that um is about a month old so i've got a number of causes I've just said I'll I'll respond to them perhaps a little bit more uh, too um too verbosely um but there you go that's me and at the end of the show after the call ends which I th- really do I urge you to listen to because they're they're good points and although they do tie into previous episodes so um be be forewarned um, or be warned. Is, can you say forewarned? At the end, anyway, I've, I've I've got a little walk around and something to say about the time bandits. So that might appeal to fans of Terry Gilliam or early eighties fantasy TV and film. So that's pretty much what I'm going to do, and um, we'll see how it goes. You know me. But I will make an effort to put out something sooner than later uh, and not add any further uh, recordings other than the conclusion to this particular episode. Thank you so much for your patience and uh, let's get started with the call-ins. The first one, or not the first one, but the first one um, is from Jason of Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Take it away, Jason. Hey, Jason here. Listen to Bless with a Little Knowledge. Great episode. As far as world building, I would highly recommend if you want to do joint world building with the GM still kind of in control, look at Beyond the Wall. Even if now Beyond the Wall is a OSR game, so it's going to be really familiar and easy to lift things out of to use in any system, any kind of OSR style system. But Beyond the Wall has great has really great mechanics for joint world building. So check that out. I know Spencer of Keep Off the Borderlands is frequently cited beyond the wall, if that's the right word, the right name, uh, as being a really great um, role-playing game. And uh, yeah, I've keep on, I've kept on hearing this and, and been thinking about buying it, but I've not got around to it. I think probably... Um, it's something that I'll pick up in PDF at some point soon, uh, sooner than later, and possibly 
at a point where I'm starting a new campaign of some kind. The next thing I want to mention are skills. You know, we've been talking about skills over on my show and the, you know, the problem with skills. And I kind of agree with you. I don't really think they're needed. But I find background skills, like you were initially talking about, things like boat builder or weaponsmith, to be less problematic than skills like desert survivor that give you mechanical advantages. So skills that, like desert survival, where maybe you have to use less water than other characters, you know, that's almost a must-take skill in something like Dark Sun, right? And when you look at, like, the rule cyclopedia, that's some of the problem there because some of those skills are almost like feats, like night fighting and stealth. And, and in fact, stealth is better than low-level thieves. So you could have a character with stealth that is better at that than, than a thief is. And so now there are limits to stealth, but still. So I think some skills can be very problematic and, and, I, and overpowered. But I think background skills, like career skills, that may not come in... I, I think skills that aren't feats. Skills that don't come in during combat and skills that don't limit the other characters are okay. And I think that's where it's a problem, where skills become things other characters can't do. I think is where skills fall apart. You know, I don't think there's an understanding that anybody can build a boat. So I think boat builder is not a problem, right? I don't think there's an understanding that anybody knows how to repair armor. So I think that's okay for armor smith or whatever to be, you know, to be a skill. But I do think like knife fight, knife fighting, or blind fighting, or stealth, or climbing walls, or even swimming, really, it can be problematic because it really limits other characters. I mean, that's kind of oh, goes back to the problem of the thief, right? Why can't anybody listen to the door? Which, of course, they can in AD&D, but so that's not really a valid argument. But, but you know what I'm saying with the thief skills. Um, anyway, I, I think I've wittered on enough here. But, yeah, I think skills, as long as they're kept out of the adventuring realm and in the support realm, are okay. But once skills get into the adventuring realm and say what characters can't do, they become very problematic. Yeah, you know, for the most part, I'm I'm fine with the second edition um, non-weapon proficiencies. I'm a little bit less uh, persuaded by what has been added in the Dark Sun because, you know, these skills are so important that almost they should be just regular adventurous skills that everybody has, you know, and I'm talking about the the you know water finding or um i forget what it's called now but the the desert survival that allows you to consume less water the these things are should be adventuring skills because they're so important everybody virtually everybody's going to take it um so why not just build it into the game that's that's how i look at it um and that's possibly one of the that that crosses over to what you're saying about does it exclude other people from from doing something? Well, this doesn't quite exclude the preservation of war, doesn't quite exclude everybody, but it's so it should be so ubiquitous a part of the Dark Sun setting that, you know, as far as an adventurer goes, everybody should automatically have that skill. And so why bother even uh, dealing with it in the first place? Um it seems like they're 
they're saying, look, it's a dangerous desert, but if you spend this point, it's no longer quite as dangerous. Well, just don't make it as dangerous. If you're going to make that available anyway, um, and anyone can take it, just um, I, I, I really don't see the, the, the point. And I think it just adds a lot of um, adjusting and, and ro dice rolling that could just be built in as an assumption. Right. Well, I'm going to go on to another point that occurred to me while I was listening to your uh, comment, Jason. And this is things like um, the, the skills, not in second edition, which are a little bit more tidied up from those of first edition. But it's more um, a, a point. Um, is it a parallel um, rules point from the rules cyclopedia, the Beckme edition of Dungeons and Dragons? It wasn't really in the original Beckme, but it was um, bolted on through the edition of the Gazetteers and appeared in the rules cyclopedia as as an optional or part of the rules. I think it's optional. So what are they? What's the problem? Well. We've got things like intimidation, um, bargaining, um, deceiving, deceiving, right? Um, what's deceiving? This is the ability to persuade a listener of the truth and the sincerity of what the speaker is saying, despite the fact that the skill user is lying through his teeth. Um, successful use of this causes an NPC to believe an untrue statement or to accept a misleading statement as honest and sincere. Failure indicates that the character sounds unconvincing. This skill cannot be used on player characters. Well, at least they've added that point at the end. But still, this seems incredibly um, powerful and ripe for uh, abuse and countless arguments around the table as to what this would enable people to do. And I can see conflict here now uh, between the players who've bought this skill and the GM, who is desperately trying to uh, save the campaign from being um, destroyed by a, a misuse of the skill. Um, what else we got? Uh, bargaining, I said, this is similar. It allows you to get a good deal on stuff. It doesn't get, allow you to get something for free, it adds. Um, there's some other really interesting ones as well. Uh, intelligence, charisma, bargaining, deception. We've already said that. Leadership, persuasion. Um, persuasion. What does this allow you to do? So this is a charisma skill. Um, please allow me to just uh, go over this very quickly. This is the ability to persuade NPCs of your character's honesty and sincerity. It's not a liar's skill, it says. The speaker must believe the truth of what he says. Successful use of the skill means the listener believes what the speaker tells him. It does not mean that the listener will agree to actions proposed proposed by the speaker. The DM can assign modifiers of plus one to plus eight to the skill roll if the audience is hostile. This is a good skill for diplomats and negotiators to have. Um, there's mimicry, there's a lot of other things. But um, what this does to the game, in my uh, opinion, and I think this is an opinion, this is something that um, I rediscovered upon watching a Beck Me Berserker YouTube um, um, movie, but I, I'm not sure about that. It could be a YouTube film by the Beck Me Berserker, a great, great little channel for, for Beck Me in old school D&D. But um, it, it just, you know, these are 
role-playing skills being reduced to roles. Um, and we've already got a system of reaction roles. We've got a system for charisma. And then bolting this on as well means that you're almost giving people, uh, player characters, the ability to persuade, uh, mimic spells like charm almost. Not quite as powerful as charm, you might say, but at least as powerful as friends, the friends spell. Um um, other sp skills like knowledge, this, knowledge, that. Suddenly, we the players are walking libraries, uh, walking um, uh, archives. And so what's the point of having the sage? Um, what's the point of going back to town to research something? Now, yes, of course, we can, we can take the rules with a pinch of salt and we can adapt them to our play style. But... In my opinion, it just opens up a, a a can of worms, and it's better not to be to have been mentioned at all, and to be something that's negotiated freely without half-hearted um, rules like this. Anyway, let's continue on to see what else Jason has to say. You've hit on what I think would be a great topic for a podcast, and that's: do we give? Do we feel compelled to give too much information? as the game master. You mentioned that one of the half-elves in Dark Sun got a little more information than the elves and they probably should have. And well, that's role-playing. But I wonder if that's you as the DM secretly wanting to share all this knowledge you have that the players don't. And I think this may be even more of an issue with homebrew stuff than modules, where we've created this world and we want to share it, so we end up with ex long expositions and giving more, you know, info dumps and and giving the players more information probably than we really should, because we think it'll not only help along the adventure, but the players may appreciate it like we do. So I wonder your thoughts on: Are we? Do we feel as DMs compelled to give a little too much information to the players? in the balance of giving too much information as opposed to withholding it or, you know, just something along those lines. I don't know. I, this is kind of unstructured, so I'll just leave the whole mess in your lap, and I'm confident you'll make something useful out of it. Okay, thank you so much for those three messages, Jason. And as I've already said, I apologize for taking so long and getting back to you. But um, the final point there about... Um, long expositions and and revealing too much to your players, I think is uh, quite uh, an interesting point. Um, I think it, it it can be split into different grades of what is acceptable and less acceptable, <laughs> and that would obviously depend from on group to group, um, uh, individual to individual, but. In the case of a little knowledge, the information is actually very sparse. And so I think what we're doing there is we're teasing out um, connections or, or, or narrative from what is actually a very unstructured narrative, um, something that is more hinted at than explicitly stated. Um, and you'll see similar things, I think, in um, 
what is it, the hole in the oak, for example, um, by Necrotic Gnome, for the old school essentials uh, role playing game, that there are things in the underworld that are presented um, by the writer that don't always quite make sense, and it's, so it's up to the the DM and the players to to piece things together. And that will be uncovered through their exploration, uh, but also through their interaction with NPCs um, and the various denizens of the underworld. Well, similarly in in the Dark Sun, um, I think through the through the the role playing um, and through some decent reaction roles, um, charisma roles, whatever you want to call them. Um, I decided that, yeah, I mean, these are some points that should come up, should be shared with the player. And they are interesting um, in that they're not long, they do not form long expositions in this case, but they provide seeds for further exploration and for further development of the game. And they give a sense that these NPCs also have um, complex um, complex um, positions and roles within the world that they have their own sort of desires and, and needs uh, objectives and that opens up a whole realm of possibilities when it comes to negotiating with them interacting with them so I don't think in this case that that is uh, a problem um, because no there's no huge big info dump there but you do get that right um, uh, it, it, it does happen to be the case that many um, of the older modules have a huge amount of information running around in them um, particularly in the beginning I find with adventures like Homelet or the village of Homelet or the temple of elemental evil uh, there's a huge amounts of exposition sometimes right at the beginning of the adventure or as you're you know uh, to open up to set the scene and I think that was uh, that well let's just say I think it's something that I'm not a big fan of because I think it's just boring and it, it really it really stops the game before it even gets started better than that is to say you're all in an inn or you're just coming up to the gates of the of the keep on the borderlands um the guards hail you and ask what your what your um business is here um after settling your business um you you are directed to the inn where you sit down and there are a number of people discussing uh discussing their business some of them talking about uh, this or that that they've heard rumors that they've heard of bandits or raiders goblin raiders or you know you get the idea so then they the players are hooked they start talking uh, and asking questions i want to go over to the barman i want to go over to the table that we're talking about the hobgoblins uh, and then we can use the rumor tables to develop um uh, develop randomly parts of story that will connect in to the p player character's desires for adventure um, and the DM's desire for the adventure to get off uh, on a um, off to a flying start um, and preferably something that's not 
pre-scribed by the DM in my case, because that just kills it for me. You know, when I know that this has to be done in order, X has to be done in order for Y to occur, and then Y must um, precede Z, um, you know, it's like, well, you end up just guiding the players through, right? And we've, we've been here before, we've discussed this before, but I guess these things are kind of interrelated. So, yes, um, pieces of law, pieces of information, scraps of law, not, not big expositions, um, rumours and, uh, and um, discussions with NPCs that seed uh, further investigation, even if they don't, they leave they lead to dead ends. The dead ends may actually lead somewhere else, if that makes any sense. Um, but not 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 um, leaving breadcrumbs uh, on the path through the forest, so that Hansel and Gretel can make their way to home or to the wherever. You, you get the point. We don't. We don't want that to happen. Yeah, we don't want them to get home. <laughs> we want the breadcrumbs to be eaten by birds. We want the Hansel and Gretel to to end up somewhere else. Um, maybe a witch's hut. Maybe somewhere else. Maybe falling down a crevasse or uncovering the great riches or uh, finding out that uh, their father or mother are in fact members of some strange cult. You get the idea. Anyway. Thank you so much, Jason. And we have some more calls. Um, I think we have... Oh, no. I don't know. So let's just get on with it. Hey, Rob. This is Michael, first-time caller. Just started listening to your podcasts, and I've gotten through, I think, the first or the last three episodes. Uh, enjoying it. Enjoying your walkthrough of Kyoto, pointing things out, as Daniel said in his call-in as well. Also just wanted to comment real quick on the 3D6 mechanics you're working on i've actually switched out d20 saves for 3d6 in mouse ritter which is based off of into the odd so it's less swingy but in that system if you take damage it actually reduces your strength temporarily and then you have to roll under your strength score to stay uh, conscious in a fight so maybe it would be better to be swingy at that point if you're going to have more odds of getting lower results, that might be better. So just, uh, I guess, an interesting tidbit there, but not so relevant for another system. And thank you, Michael, or Merck the Meek. So this is why I was going to introduce you, but I, I wasn't sure if it was Merck the Meekle, um, and, I wasn't, and I got confused. So anyway... Um, no, I think these that, that is relevant. I mean, obviously, it's a different system, but these things, because assuming the games will use a, a similar dice system, uh, you can um, interchange these different components and switch it up, change the feel of the game, change something, a core, um, a dynamic that maybe wasn't quite what the group wanted and, and then switch it for something that, feels better that speeds up the game um that's really interesting so 3d6 i think that would work in a system where the saves are a little bit less 
stringent than say AD&D where the, the saves tend to be very high. It would be very hard to hit those high numbers with 3D6. Um, it's hard enough even with a D20. But in other um, versions of the game um, where you have um, some quite low saves even from first level and I'm thinking probably Beck me with maybe the dwarf, some of the dwarf's saves or the the, the cleric's uh, saves, then it, it you know it could make a little bit more sense. Of course, you know if you're saving at a seventeen or an eighteen, well that's going to be really tough. Um, that's going to really punish some of the some of the classes with the less uh, strong saving throw um, saving throws. So thank you so much for calling in. Um, and again, uh, as I've said with Jason, I apologize for taking so long to respond to your kind uh, words. So talk to you soon, hopefully. And I look forward to looking, listening to your podcast. Although I must add, Mark, that I am very much behind on my podcast listening. And this is actually my first time back to any kind of uh, listening or, or speaking um, with regard to podcasts for... Uh, about a month or longer now so uh, anyway um, take care and talk to you soon hey so this is me it's been a while since i recorded anything but i thought i've got something to say so i'll just get it out there i was watching terry gilliam's time bandits the other night i think it's the first time i've seen that in I don't know how long, um, probably since the 90s, maybe the early 90s, not sure. Um, and it was interesting to see some of the things that I spotted this time that um, I wasn't quite so aware of. Well, first, before I, before I go into that, a little kind of dark um, um, and subjective territory, I just will mention the the uh the more kind of obvious aspects of the movie so the, the quality at least the version that was available on amazon which i assume is a pretty standard version of the movie um was very grainy you know the film stock hasn't really been improved a great deal um and maybe wasn't fantastic to begin with now i can't remember who made this is it handmade films uh, i know that i know that uh George Harrison was involved in the uh, production of this movie. But anyway, um, you know, sometimes the sound is a little bit, <clears throat> a little bit kind of uh, murky. The image is a little bit murky. It's very typical of these kind of movies. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of With Nell and I, for example, um, an absolutely fantastic movie, probably one of my favorite movies. Um, yet the, the sound quality is pretty awful. Um, despite that you know, amazing dialogue uh, the the camera shots are very very murky which perhaps isn't a bad thing given the movie you know it gives it that kind of dirty sink uh, British kind of dull weather look um, and perhaps that is a good thing it would be lost in a lot of the film and TV productions today which tend to go for you know um, very very clear pictures and wide pictures open shots uh, that's not what you get 
there. Uh, and Terry Gilliam, obviously a very different uh, director from the guy that did with, uh, with Nell and I, whose name eludes me at the moment. But, you know, he's, he's, one, he's a master of these kind of very dramatic shots, cameras, camera angles. Um, I'm thinking of the shot where one of the main uh, characters, one of the main little bandits, um, I'm, I'm, I'm calling them little bandits, that's probably worse than calling them dwarfs, right? Uh, apologies. But uh, I forget his name. Um, I know Kenny Baker is in there who played R2-D2. There's this dude, one of the main ones, um, fantastic actually, really good actor, uh, at least in this role, brilliant. Um, anyway, yeah, he, he, um, in this shot he gets knocked over and he, he falls back on this bony carcass of something and so you get this amazing shot of him in his face and you, you get the idea anyway, uh, watch the movie. So, um, one of the things I liked about it, um, or I thought were interesting that probably didn't quite, I didn't quite grasp at the time, is the gonzo, I'm going to use the word gonzo, the gonzo aspect of the movie. The movie, um, if you don't know, is about a bunch of time-travelling uh, small people, little people, um, the time bandits, who have acquired this map from the from the creator, okay, who they work for, who appears to be the supreme being, God. Um, and they have decided to set themselves up as bandits and go and rob various famous people throughout history. So that's the general idea. Now, the main one of the main characters is this young boy who I don't think this is his first... I don't think he's a seasoned actor at all. Um, I don't know what happened to him. If you do, give the call. Um, but, it, you know, he just does his part. Um, he looks the part. He looks like your average um, little English boy uh, from the early 80s um, um, and uh, he just acts himself from the sound of it I mean not entirely always convincing but you know it's convincing enough and enjoyable so uh, he he ends up going with these bandits and having these fantastic adventures you know um, I forgot what I was going to say oh yeah the gonzo element oh gonzo in what respect there's some really just bizarre things that happen and it's not just the, the sense of humour, the Monty Python humour that creeps in. Yes, Michael Palin is in this movie, as well as Terry Gilliam. But um, what it has is, for example, you've got the scene at the end, the kind of last fight, which is very, very cartoonish, very odd, really oddball. And it, it reminds me a little bit of um, uh, Tim Burton, in a way. See. So, you end up with the bad guy kind of twirling around. I won't tell you what he's doing or why he's doing it, but um, it's kind of like he turns into this merry-go-round thing and, you know, knives come out, twirling knives come out of the top of his head, all that kind of thing. Uh, um, yeah, really weird. Uh, um, so that, that, that caught me. But what also struck me was the, was the philosophical angle, which I don't think I'd fully grasped when I when I was younger um, and it, it really comes to a head at, with the line so what you have is these these doors these holes in time that open up at certain points and and uh, 
the, the guys, you know, the, ba- the time banners, they were, they're there because they only had seven days to finish the earth, right? Funny little throwaway joke, isn't it? Um, so you've got all these holes, these wormholes or something in, through uh, space-time, and they use these in order to move around and uh, go back and forth through time. Uh, fantastic. But they're, they're put there intentionally. And also the, there's an evil you know, bad guy who is trying to steal the map, of course, you know. Um, now, why is he there if God is all-powerful, right? And that's part of the discussion. It is actually, is it the ontological discussion? Or is that one about existence? Existence? Existence of evil, I forget. Anyway, so they're talking about why is there evil in the world? Why, if God is um, all-powerful and all-knowing, um, omniscient, omniscient, would he allow for the existence of evil? We already know that the that God in this world does exist or appears to exist. So, why would he allow this uh, this devil, a, a character who's essentially the devil, um, to exist? And uh, that, that's played up throughout the movie in, in in small doses until at the end. God says, "Well, if I didn't do that, we wouldn't have any free will." Uh, and what would you do if you were just told what to do? So with free will, you're given the options to, the choices to choose different outcomes, some of which will be good and some of which will be evil. Okay, so, yeah, um, it's interesting, right? So if you're going to have this universe where these ultimate um, beings exist or an ultimate being exists, you have to answer the, and think about these questions, particularly if you've assign certain qualities of of omniscience or or benevolence to that creature uh, that entity um so you know little touches by terry gilliam i'm not going to bother going to the uh, discussions too much here because i don't really fully uh, know them myself enough to relate them in any way that would do the subject matter any justice but um i'm sure there's other people who might want to call in about that and uh talk about this at least perhaps from the perspective of of uh world design game design and thinking why do we have alignments why do we have um these different um um, entities living um opposed to each other um and the conflicts that they must entail how is the the game world or the the cosmology how how is the universe the multiverse the world how does it maintain its integrity without being shattered by all these contradictions and conflicts so there you go if you can have any comments about that give give me a shout um but yeah just to wrap things up um time bandits yeah little gem real gem i really enjoyed it coming back to it i think i'd watch it again Lots of uh, good humour in there. A little bit of thought-provoking uh, commentary or, or subject matter. And the final scene in, in, as well is, is I would say, very typically British in a way, despite the fact that, obviously, Terry Gilliam is not British. Um, the way that the it ends as if it could be a dream still or might not be, and you don't know... Um, there's an uncomfortable sense of not knowing um, what kind of world 
the boy has woken up into um, because the world he wakes up into is stranger than the one he the dreamlike world he has left um, and suggests a kind of overlapping of these different uh, themes and so mm, it's a good one anyway lovely movie got to get to watch some more Terry Gilliam soon all right Okay, so that brings us to the end of the show. We're going to tie it up here before it starts to sprawl into even more of a mess than it already is. And I did look back and uh, discovered after watching the YouTube video that it was indeed the Beckme Berserker who had done a review of of the Dungeons and Dragons Rules Cyclopedia. Um, which is a rule system. I think he prefers the box sets, actually, but I think it, it's it's his system of choice. And he goes in there around the eight minute and two second mark. He begins a, a discussion, a discussion of the skills. And around 10 minutes or so, he, at 10 minute point, he starts to talk about this uh, issue of the deception skill and other skills imported into the game that are no more no longer just um, parts of the character's background or giving them color but actually impinge or have the 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 the, the ability to impinge upon the way that the game is played at the table to really affect the way that the game is played at the table so um i've added that or add that into the show notes um once more thank you for everyone for being so uh, kind. Um, I have received an email. Yeah, I get an email. That's something I get excited about. I go, I go in my mailbag of one mail. Um, I was kind enough to receive a, a message from, um, I believe he uses the, the name JB. So I, I won't touch on that just now because I don't want it to to sprawl but he was kind enough to write in and uh, reminded me that uh, that we all do podcasts or listen to podcasts because we share the same interest uh, in our cases most of us are interested in old school gaming even if you play pathfinder one joe even if you play pathfinder one you are now um accidentally perhaps uh, part of the old school D&D group and of course you know this podcast isn't just about D&D but it has been a, a lot about D&D recently because that's what they love to play isn't it that's they love it they love a bit of it so we're gonna I'm gonna wrap this up I would like to thank you all once more thank you to Merc the Meek thank you to Jason of Nerds RPG thank you to JB um, for your kind message uh, thank you even to Bake Me Berserker who probably doesn't even listen to this podcast but whose um, YouTube channel is well worth listening to and um, until next time uh, everybody please stay well um, keep playing or at least engaging with this hobby of ours that that has probably kept you interested or uh, catch your imagination alive even when you weren't playing it around the table so um yeah i'll be back soon i suspect all right everyone thank you so much bye-bye now